Hello, welcome to Strange Love of Movies. My name is Olivia Martinez, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Oscar and Emily Martinez. And today, it's episode six of our Baz Luhrmann series, and we're talking about Elvis, finally. This is the reason for the series. This is the reason for all of our existences. No, I'm kidding. But Elvis has been a long-awaited film. One, because Baz Luhrmann is one of our favorite filmmakers, if you cannot tell by how much we praise his past films, minus... Australia and Strictly Ballroom. But besides that, we just love Baz. And also, for me personally, Austin Butler was one of my first crushes as a kid, you know? The very first Netflix show I ever watched, I think I was like nine or ten years old. It was Switched at Birth. Not a great show at all. Austin Butler's character's in like two episodes. And I was like, that guy is cute. And then here he is playing Elvis. He's one of the biggest stars now because of Baz and because of this film. And so I was just so excited to see it. And what did we think? I really enjoyed it. I also had looked forward to it. I'm not the world's biggest Elvis fan, but I like enough of his songs that I knew it would be enjoyable, and it was. The music was great. Baz Luhrmann was just the person to handle a story and a personality as big as Elvis. But it also had its flaws, and I think in a way it was taking on such a well-known story and it's hard for movies to kind of match what's already known to the public. Well, and I, I too, really enjoyed it. Uh, but if you think about it, what, like you said, what better director to take on? Think of the topics. Minus Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge, even Australia. Not the best. Entire continent. Who makes a movie about an entire continent? And then The Great Gatsby was his previous film in 2013, We've had to wait nine years for this, and we have interesting feelings about this film because it the, the shadow of COVID cast a long shadow over this film because they were making it in Australia when Mr. Tom Hanks, who's in the film we'll talk about pretty soon, got COVID. Remember, that was the, the moment when, uh-oh, Tom Hanks can get it. That's Everybody when people else started taking it yeah, seriously. Yeah, and so, so that, that took a while, and so it was made during that time. And as you know about Strange Love, we kind of started during COVID. So there's a, there's a connection there. But as far as larger than life, yes, it's about Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, and his story about how he grew up from, you know, from nothing. If Gatsby was a rags to riches, I mean, he was literally in rags. I mean, this, this is, you know, this was, and he, he came from nothing. And only in America. Another truly American story is the Elvis Presley story. Yeah, it's so funny that Baz has made two films in a row that are the most American thing ever, considering he's Australian, but it doesn't really matter because he makes some great movies. And I also really enjoyed Elvis. You know, I have a few problems with a performance that you guys probably know which one I'm talking about. And we actually have differing ideas on this, so I'm excited to talk about it. But I think that Austin Butler did an amazing job as Elvis Presley. I mean, I agree. Yeah, you know what else? Excellent. I was thinking he, he should be nominated and win the best actor for all. Uh, I, I mean, mean he had to he play so many different Versions. sides of, yeah, of this person that, again, everybody knows. So he was playing somebody that everybody kind of thinks they know and expects certain things from. And yet he had to show sides of him that the public wasn't aware of. And, um, yeah, he did great. Well, job. you know, when it first came out, uh, the only rave reviews it was getting was from the Presley family, Lisa Marie, his daughter, and his granddaughter. She's a musician too, isn't she? She's an actress. And then his wife. Yeah, and Priscilla, yeah, his, his, his ex-wife. And they all loved it. 
And it's like, oh, well, no, the critics are liking it. But then who, who better to appreciate it? They knew him. They lived with him. And the same thing with uh, the last movie we reviewed, uh, The Great Gatsby. Fitzgerald's granddaughter. Okay, but what does she know? Well, what does she know? But she said he would have liked it. How does she know? Well, she probably has access to certain letters and holograms. Okay, and- that... <laughs> Is goofy. I don't think that she knows anything about her grandfather. Man, strange love. This is getting (laughs) testy in here. Well, and I think with this movie, I think the reviews have been mixed, right? I mean, it's been pretty positive reviews. Yes, but it's here's what's weird about his films. They're all mixed. If you look at them, Rotten Tomatoes, people, the public loves them. The critics are like 60, 70 percent, and the public's like 95 percent or so. You know. And I think that's so important. You know, I think Baz Luhrmann and Christopher Nolan are two of the only film makers who still get huge budgets for more original kind of films. I mean, I know Gatsby and Romeo and Juliet aren't strictly original, but you know, they look original and yet they both get fairly good critical acclaim, but then people just love them and people just go back to them over and over again. Yeah. I think those, those are two directors and maybe the only two directors who make movies that are very original and are creative without any question, incredibly creative and innovative and yet they're also enjoyable because a lot of times you have to choose between going to a movie that is maybe artistically impressive and one that's entertaining. Well, Baz Luhrmann films are both. And it's interesting too, right, that when you see on this big screen a Baz Luhrmann production and that Art Deco style. I was he has, so excited. He's got his own font. Yeah, it's, the only thing I can equate it to is like George Lucas, the Lucas film. When that that comes on, you know, the whole, you know, a Star Wars movie is coming out. And even for those who don't remember, back in the day, Phantom Menace came out in the 90s. There were people who would go just to see the trailer. This is right before the Internet. And they'd leave as soon as the trailer ended. That's that how, is ridiculous. And that's, that's weird. And, and you, we know George Lucas, an incredible storyteller. Not the best director, and so that's that's crazy. I can't think of another director that has that kind of appeal. Yeah, and that's very true. And I think that... Besides the performance by Austin Butler and the direction of this film, the costumes, again, are beautiful. But that's a given because Elvis had some of the... I mean, I wouldn't say they're beautiful costumes. They're, just, they're insane at some points. But Elvis just had a crazy wardrobe. And it's interesting to see how his wardrobe progressed throughout the movie and throughout Elvis's life. You know, he didn't start gaudy and all that. You know, he started by wearing kind of pink suits, probably similar to, you know, the ones Gatsby was wearing at times and just kind of a little bit avant-garde style. And then he went into leather. And then when he went to Vegas, that's when everything turned and this Elvis aesthetic, you know, when you see the fake Elvis marrying people. By the way, why is that a thing? I don't know. It started after his death. Yeah, I think it's always been, even in his lifetime, there were Elvis impersonators in Vegas. It's just such a weird weird. thing. But yeah, when he got to Vegas, he became even flashier and he stayed flashy until his untimely death. On to the storytelling of this movie. They do it by having a narrator who is not Elvis. It is <laughs> Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks. And I think this is one of the worst performances I've ever seen from a well-known actor. I'm just going to say it. And suddenly the air deflates from this nice big balloon that was forming. Now, you're right. Just, as soon as you reminded me of it, I'm like, ugh. I kind of begged to differ. Ah, Lionheart! It's funny because I definitely think he overacts and it's, I I, I mean, this is, if you 
can ever point to a performance that you either love it or hate it, this is the one. And I think it was... So you're I, saying you love it. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, well, no, maybe that's not... Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I'm, again, I, oh, it seems like I point this out for every episode. There's somebody that I say this about that I'm not the world's biggest Tom Hanks fan. Uh, but the fact is I'm not. I mean, I, I kind of think he's overrated. But... In this, I kind of respect the idea that I have a feeling he decided, am I going to go for it? I mean, am I just going to be a, a personality and a big enough personality and a big enough character to kind of match up with Elvis? And he became that. And from what we hear about Colonel Tom Parker, his famous manager, he was a pretty wild carnival type guy. So he really had to be this this big personality and I think they play him as the villain and he does a good job of that there's kind of a menacing undercurrent throughout the movie which gives it that feeling of even when you're having a fun time listening to the music you kind of know that this isn't going to last and I think that Colonel Tom Parker and Tom Hanks portrayal of him reminds you all along that there are forces at work that are going to lead to some tragedy. Well, my criticism of it comes in, in one of the words you just used, villain. I don't think they knew, there needed to be a villain here because uh, they made it, it wasn't like Elvis was this saint and this incredible guy. He was a good guy, a nice southern boy, nice southern gentleman, but he was a rock star. I mean, he was the rock star and he wrote the template for it, you know, everything from the 50s, in the 60s, he was the first one to come have a comeback and, and go in a different genre. And even what Tom Parker was getting him to do was become different people, you know, be the rocker Elvis, be the clean-cut Elvis, be the military Elvis, be the married Elvis, be the Vegas Elvis, all these different things. That's what the, the artists do. They change. And it wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't just, oh, Parker, you need, you need to do this, you need to do that. It was more natural. It was more. It was more of an evolution of him as a, as a singer. And from what you've read about Parker, he in fact was a pretty good manager, right? Sure, he I mean, got him he that. He does deserve some credit for moving Elvis along. Yeah, like that one thing on my notes, which I can't find. But the uh, one of the notes I saw was when he had that deal in Vegas. They make it seem like oh, Tom Parker had all these gambling debts, and apparently he did. And he and Elvis needed to play um, Vegas to pay them off. He was getting almost a million dollars a week Oof. And, and, and today's money back then. And that was the other thing Elvis did. Every, you know, every contract he signed, he was getting tons of money. And those movies, he made like 27 films. They're all, some were better than others, but as they got to the end, they got pretty, pretty lame, you know. They always made money. They were the only movies in the 60s that consistently made money. So giving the people what they want, and maybe they did it a little bit too long, but still from being a manager and yeah you know he he was a bit of a con man but he, he Elvis was fine with it he could have said no he's a grown man right they made that point in the in the in the movie right yeah Elvis spent way too much money though and that is a really well-known thing because he had a lot of friends who some of them were genuine friends but they just kind of lived off of him and he let that happen you he know he just basically supported a whole group of people not just his family but all these friends yeah he was not good with money but i can i go back to colonel tom parker real fast i was so bored by that performance at first i was scandalized like the first five minutes about the snowman and all that weird stuff yeah he's like joking you gotta be kidding right <laughs> 
Yeah, I was like, this can't be real. This this is so bad. Why is it? Why are his prosthetics so horrendous? Why does his accent sound like that? But then he just kept going and going. And two and a half hours later, I was like, oh god. And I agree with that. I think that there's way too much Tom yeah. Parker. Yeah, I think it should have. I think the the movie was probably a little too long. But the only way it was too long was it had. Too much of a focus on Tom Parker. People were there to see Elvis, so yeah, that was a little unnecessary. Yeah, because think about it too. I mean, he was the the goose that laid the golden egg, and not just for Tom Parker, but for the entire ecosystem, the Memphis Mafia, 25, 30 people, including his dad too, these folks who had never run a business before, and they all depended on him. And uh why would he let him do these drugs that were going to kill him, you know, or or whatever? And as much as anything, it was a grueling schedule. One of the, the things I, I saw in the research, there was one year he played 170 concerts in one year. And the oh, way he hard like... That's almost two, that's two a day, right? Almost pretty much, right? Have you ever done the ma- 170 concerts? They're 365 days in the year. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> that's one every two days. Yeah. There we go. Yes, and that's never done nowadays. That's crazy. And so that sheer exhaustion, and and it was sad because from 73 to 77, that's four years. In that time, he actually was in a coma one time from a barbiturate overdose. He was actually had to cancel a whole week's worth of concerts because he almost died another time. So he was on the edge. And even that, he was the template, right? The rock and roll singer. That's the life he knew. And it's not like he was... He had other issues going on, and not not because he was self-destructive, but ultimately he was. And they didn't mention his diet either. It wasn't the best diet. You know, his favorite sandwich was uh, peanut butter, banana, and bacon every day. And he was self-indulgent, and he was spoiled. So he really didn't have many people to tell, or anybody to tell him no. And I think ultimately when his wife left him, Priscilla... I think that was kind of the first time he'd ever faced rejection, at least as an adult. And uh, that was, that helped undermine his, I guess, his confidence and and what kept him going. Well, that's why they call them yes men and yes women, because if you only hear yes and somebody says no, they're not there anymore, you know? And I think he, he um, and it's funny because all these people who are portrayed as villains, Colonel Tom Parker... Dr. Nick, right? Everybody knows about the doctor. Even he tried to give him placebos because he was using way too many of these. Um, I, I don't think Elvis ever did recreational drugs, but he's from that generation of, well, the doctor prescribes it. It must be okay, you know? And it must be, and yeah, it must be yeah. safe. And and that's what really did him in. But, but it's mostly the schedule. I mean, nobody can live like that. You can't keep doing that. Two shows a night, you know? It's ridiculous. Going back to what we were saying about who's the villain and whether Elvis and Tom Parker are portrayed fairly, really as original as this is, I think that it does follow in a long line of biopics where the artist is portrayed as a tragic victim. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of like the artist can't help. He can't help himself. He's just being taken advantage of and his talent is being used. But... Elvis was a grown man, and I think that I'm not old enough to remember. I mean, I vaguely remember when Elvis died, but I don't really remember feeling anything when Elvis died. But I think of like when Michael Jackson died, and that was certainly a tragedy, and he was taken advantage of. 
But again, also, he was a grown man. And so the decisions that these guys make, you can only give them so much latitude as far as trying to find somebody else to blame. And we were talking about that a few days ago because their situations are kind of similar, Michael Jackson and Elvis. But I was like, have fun with whoever decides to make that (laughs) biopic. That will not be as sympathetic. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to be a movie. But back to something they didn't portray. So Priscilla Presley is in this film, obviously. She was a major part of Elvis's adult life. However, they their relationship builds so quickly in this film, and they don't they forget to mention the fact that Priscilla was 14 years old when her and Elvis met, and he was 24. He was in they met in Germany because her father was what was it? The, he was an Air Force officer. Yeah. yeah, something like so yeah, they didn't show any of that. They just showed them having a little fun, you know, listening to a record, and then it was like literally 30 seconds. It was like, you know, we got married in this private little wedding and then we um, had a baby. And, you know, those are some of the most iconic photos of Elvis of all time. You know, the wedding yeah. photos and the baby photo where she's wearing the pink and looking great, you know? Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that because to me, that's almost like the most scandalous part of the whole life is I think that that Priscilla moved to Memphis and lived in Graceland before they were married. Yeah, now, it was like six or seven years before they got married. Yes, until she reached a certain age. Right. And I mean, I, I think the story always was that it was just a platonic relationship or, you know, it was not consummated until they were married, but it is very strange. Nowadays, it would certainly raise some eyebrows. And Olivia Dijon is the actress that plays Priscilla, and she does an excellent job. She is beautiful. Priscilla was also beautiful. Good casting there. Yes, and shall we say who plays uh, his father? It's a little bit funny. Yes. (laughs) Richard Roxburgh, who was fantastic as the Duke in Moulin Rouge. And it's funny, seeing all these films, you realize he does have an ensemble cast that he calls on to come out, you know, here and there to to help him out. But but getting back to the point about the, the marriage, another thing, he loved his mama, right? He loved his mother so much. And then she dies. She just dies. And he comes back and he's really sad. Couldn't spend a little bit more time on that because he actually that's actually true. He was in the military when she got really sick. He came home. She was still alive for about a month or two. One scene showing how much he loved her, you know, and how his, connected they yeah. were. Because I mean that that really was something that, that he was so close to her. Right. Because he had been a uh, his twin died, you know, he was a twin, his brother died and at birth. And his mother would always remind him of that. So he always had that in his head, you know, and just kind of plays tricks on your mind, you know. But they, I don't know. It seems like a weird thing to kind of gloss over. I mean, they showed it. They showed the aftermath, his, his grief, but they didn't show what was that connection? Why was it so strong? And I think a lot of that reminded me of House of Gucci for some reason, just like the weird editing. But speaking of, Baz Luhrmann should have directed House of Gucci, Right? Oh, he would have done a great job I, with that. I just yeah. thought about that as I was watching it because also in House of Gucci and in Elvis, there are just some awkward edits where things are kind of just like, I mean, they don't, they're not aesthetically awkward, but story-wise, they're kind of awkward, like the mother death scene and stuff like that. Or like when Elvis is just randomly walking around Beale Street and then ends up in some cool bar and, you know, little Richard is playing randomly. You know, stuff like that. B.B. King is giving him a life advice. Yeah, it's just kind of weird and, like, sporadic bits of stuff that doesn't really fit in the film, even though they're really great scenes on their own. I think they're trying to... I think he's trying to kind of build the idea that Elvis was torn between this 
strong spiritual sense he had and sort of his purpose, I think, for getting into music was his strong faith, and he wanted to basically elevate people by singing. But then he also was drawn to entertaining people and loved to be loved, and so he sort of that that connection, sort of the... the tie between the sacred and profane or whatever um, that haunted him I think throughout his career because he would go back to singing gospel songs every once in a while along with rock and roll and I think that that those early scenes where he was in Memphis he was trying to work out what kind of what kind of music he was going to make what kind of star he was going to be well, and that's interesting because one of his famous quotes is saying that rock and roll has always been around. It was just gospel mixed with rhythm and blues. And he was the perfect person to do it, you know. And, and there, there's a lot of, there's some claims out there that, oh, you know, he stole rock and roll was essentially an African-American thing that started out. And certainly it was with the blues, rhythm and blues. But there are a lot of really credible musicians, including Jackie Wilson, B.B. King, uh, Otis Redding, all these people who said, None of them could move like he could, and he influenced them, you know, to to move around the way that and he did. And those are my favorite yeah. scenes. Yeah. I didn't realize. Oh, that was amazing. I guess because yeah. I've never really watched Elvis that much, I didn't realize he was such an exciting performer. Yeah, it was incredible that what he could do. But think about it this way, though, too: that ten years, you know, his 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 arc, right? Fifty late mid fifties, fifty five, fifty six to seventy seven. It was about 20 years there where he was the most famous person in the world. And there was a, the, a scene um, they show him. I think they showed the Ed Sullivan show or something where he's on there. You know how many people watch that? 82% of America watched that. So you talk <laughs> about an overnight sensation back then before the Internet, before anything like that. He was so huge, but it only lasted 20 years. And yet, what, what do you want him to do? You want him to always be that rocker, that rock and roller, like these ridiculous, again, I still like enjoy some of their songs, but these guys are touring, they're 75 years old, pretending they're, they're 25. It, it's, it's inevitable. He had to change, and he changed in, in the way that, you know, with his audience. As they got older, he got older, you know, and as they got heavier, he got heavier, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what a lot of people say that that's why people responded to him so much because he was just like them. Oh, look, he, he gained weight. I still love him, you know, or he can still sing. I still love, you know. And he really, you really sensed that he loved his audience. Yes. He did. I think he maybe loved them too much at points and he just cared too much, but I think that's every artist's issue. And I think back to the gospel thing, I think one of the best parts of the movie is when little Elvis, who was in rags, you know, rags to riches, he goes to this Pentecostal church. I assume they're Pentecostal. Um, Assembly of God. Yes. And he is just being led by the spirit and they're letting him. And the, you know, the, it's not a drone shot, but it's an overhead shot of just little Elvis getting, you know, drawn into the spirit. And it's just amazing seeing how he's moving, seeing how the people around him are moving to God. And I think from then on, he was like, I want to make music. I want to do this. And he was so heavily inspired by the people around him and the place he grew up. And I had never left him. That never left, even though he did get more commercial and he did get a little more cringe. I definitely more cringe. However, when, as he was getting more cringe and more clean and all that, he decided, I got to switch it up. I'm tired of this. And he would reinvent himself, just like Dad said. That's right. The 1968 comeback special. I mean, it was just amazing that he, he again, that was another one where it was 68, 69, something like that. And 
you know, half of America watched it. And I was like, oh, this is why we like this guy. You know, he was all tanned and rested in that leather suit. It's he was so, so tanned. So iconic. I mean, again, the comeback. I mean, because we were talking about like Frank Sinatra. He was Frank Sinatra from 45 to 1980. Same song, same tuxedo, same whatever. But this is so different because he was a, an older adult, but he could still rock and roll or whatever he wanted to do. And, and sure enough, he, he did. I mean, and, and there was a comeback. And then after that was Vegas. And it was just amazing that the arc of his career, even at the time he was touring at the same time Led Zeppelin was touring. And they, would, they had the same, not same management, obviously, but they had the same concert promoter so they would bump into each other you know they'd be playing washington and he shows up in washington and all this it's just hilarious to think of those two they're they're so different but at the end of the day he's only like what seven or eight years older maybe 10 years older at the most but it's just so funny to think that you know he was he was indestructible because they they would kill to have the kind of gate as they call it the, the type of you know, uh, concert uh, reaction that he did. Well, and that's still, that is a cliche is that, you know, Elvis has left the building. People use that expression because his audience never wanted to leave when they went to a concert, never wanted it to end. And I think that was really well displayed in the film. You know, there were so many good reaction shots of the women going crazy. They were going a little too crazy, though. I was like, come on. But maybe that's actually how it was. I don't know. But everything Baz does is above and beyond. So I don't know if they were actually, like, about to faint and stuff. But maybe. Maybe so. Yeah, I mean, I think everything you hear about how girls reacted to the Beatles, that was, they reacted that way to Elvis first. Yeah, true. And I think, yeah, this movie was a little too long, in my opinion. Tom Hanks' performance was annoying. And the last thing is, I think that, spoiler alert, Elvis's death at the end was not handled the best. It was handled fine. I like when they have the archival footage at the very, very end of Elvis Presley singing. That was really cool. But I think that it was just kind of like when his mom died, it was like, oh, yeah, he's dead. That's it. Bye. Like... You, I mean, and that's okay. That's more of a respectful way to do it, especially considering he has so many living relatives and stuff. Not showing that is good. But it was just so, all of a sudden, you didn't see him taking a few pills or eating a cheeseburger or anything. It was just yeah, because like, considering that period of his life, if you think about it, 73, 77, four years, four solid years. And that's not to say he wasn't a mess before that, but, but that they can start attributing his weight gain and his drug use between that period. That's almost exactly the same amount of time that when he shot to fame from 1955, 1956, 1960, before he went into the military. And they spent a lot of time on that. You'd think the ending is as important as the beginning in some ways. So I agree with you. I think they should have paid a little bit more attention to that and, or kind of showed why it led to that and not blame any person because he's ultimately responsible for it. You know? Well, in a way, I think, um, I think Baz Luhrmann kind of came across when he was by making the movie the way he did, kind of comes across as a fanboy. Is that the expression? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he really, I mean, he really seems to love Elvis. And he loves showing Elvis at his height and looking beautiful and looking great and powerful and strong. I think he figures that probably the movie audience doesn't really want to see the sick Elvis and uh, that it would just kind of be it's, everybody kind of knows that he ended badly and I think Baz Luhrmann figured well as a fan I don't want to see him in a bad way so I'm not going to concentrate on that very much sure and what a, what a cautionary tale but on the other hand how many famous 
famous celebrities and, and especially musicians have died before. And then how many have died since? You know, in other words, you'd think people would learn such from similar it. And it's the same thing, this isolation and just he, nobody could, he was all by himself. And it's, it's, it is really sad. Ultimately, nobody there to rein him in. Right. And really the greatest, but then you see the, going back to him being, I think, a fan, the director being a fan, that serves the film well in the sense that I think the music scenes are really great Excellent. and joyful. And you really are able to almost feel like you're at a concert. I mean, there are parts that you just kind of feel like dancing. I mean, it's really great. I agree. And I also love when the blues scenes are there, you know, in the cool little clubs and stuff. However... There is a Doja Cat song in this movie who is a rapper. She's probably 24 years old. And then I think there's another rap song in it. And those need to get, get out of there. Get, it's, I, it's called Las Vegas, though. That's why they put it in there. Right? I don't care what it's called. Why is this modern song in this movie? It, it works for Gatsby because they're all modern songs. And this, it's all Elvis songs or the songs that have inspired Elvis. And then we got this random song that I would hear on like Instagram or something. And I, I literally looked around at first because I thought someone's phone had a, <laughs> was like ringing or something because I thought it was so out of place. However, besides that, the music was so good. Favorite scenes? Yeah, let's get to favorite scenes. We've been talking about this movie too long. I would say my favorite scene is when Colonel Tom Parker is not on the screen. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think that my favorite scene is probably when Elvis is wearing that pink suit and people are it's the very first performance we see of his and everyone's like boo get out of here which is like in every movie ever and then elvis he's having some technical difficulties you know the mic's kind of doing some weird things you probably heard what the mic is doing on strange love because we have technical difficulties but i then he just explodes and is dancing and all the guys are trying to hide their girlfriend's eyes and the girls are going <laughs> crazy and it's just a lot of fun yeah, they said guys hated him because the girls loved him I so bet. much. They were so <laughs> jealous. So you know, in a lot of ways, the, the film is like a Wikipedia on screen because a lot of those things, like there's one part where the guys attack him and it looked like they were overzealous fans. And you see him reaching his boot, but you don't see what he's reaching for. He used to carry a small gun in there. And yeah. so those were real. All these things were real. There were death threats and things like that. So it's funny to pick up on things like that. But my favorite scene... Can I have two favorite scenes? Sure. Okay. Well, the uh, is yeah everybody's down on the Vegas, you know Elvis, and you know that was a, that's when he started to go downhill. But he was at the height of his powers then. He's walking on that bus, and they're playing Viva Las Vegas, and it's so bad because they're showing. That's a way to show who all the members of the Memphis Mafia and his band are. And if you know anything about either of those, that group, you recognize those names. And he looks as good as he's ever looked. And he just looks so alive. And it's so fantastic. And, and that's one of them. But the other one is when he's in that concert where he, he, he's told to play it straight and only move his little... Mm -hmm. And he did that too, where he only moved his little pinky because he was a threat to... Civilized, civilization. <laughs> that was you know? ridiculous. Yeah, but yeah. he apparently did that. He had one concert where all he did was move his little finger, and then he just rocks out and he plays that song. You know, looking for trouble, came to the right place. And I don't know. I really don't know how he made those those edits and those cuts because that was just amazing filmmaking. That that, that two or three minutes, that montage, yes, it was. black yes, and that white. Was it great. stops. I it stops, that. and there's a picture, and and it's just insane. That was. And this is a weird case where mostly, you know. We've talked about this in, in the uh, previous versions, pre previous movies we've reviewed. 
is the first half is always dynamic. It's always strong. And then the second half, it's not like it, it, it tails off, but it gets serious. So like in Gatsby, it gets very serious or Moulin Rouge, it gets very serious. And then they have the final number at the end. And this one, once the first hour goes by, oh, it really picks up. I really saw that. Didn't you experience yeah. that? Like it got yes. even more interesting as, yes. it, as it kept going on. Definitely. I know. I think the, yeah, really the first part was important because I think that's what most people don't know, don't know that story of his beginnings, but really it was the, the second, I guess the, the last two thirds that were the best because it's the music that we're all familiar with and it was his outstanding performances. And I have to say, I think probably my favorite, there were several favorite scenes, but um, just to pick one, maybe the um, when he's in the leather suit for the combat for the comeback special, oh, because yeah. he looks so terrific, and everybody's so happy for him to be able to to just you know show everybody that he's still the cool Elvis that they remember. And um, it's I like that scene, but I also like the very or t- not the very end, but toward the end, the montage where they actually, like you mentioned, incorporate archival footage of the real Elvis, mix it with scenes of Austin Butler, right? Yeah. That's really well done, too. Yeah, I think overall this movie is well done. I think it's just a little messy because of the length. And, I mean, Mom's favorite actor of all time, Tom Hanks's performance, in my opinion, makes it a little bit worse. And I think just the idea of having not Elvis be the narrator of a story, it's clever. It is it is really clever to do it that way because, you know, we've seen so many biopics through the years and so I think it's cool to have it from a different person's perspective, but at the same time, it's like, come on, give me more Austin Butler. And again, I, I to clarify, if if Tom Hanks's character had been a very minor character, and they had a lot more Elvis and a lot less Tom Parker, I think that would have made it a better movie overall. <laughs> yeah. But I do kind of respect the fact that I think he tried. I think Baz Luhrmann was trying to make a different kind of biopic. And I think the way that he made it a little bit different than just the standard was to have this this person on the outside looking in and, again, in a menacing way, kind of showing maybe what society or what the world does to its artists, to its treasures. Yeah, that's a good point. Like he represented something more than just Tom Parker. Oh, yeah. It is a good point. That's a really good point. Whatever. I wish he hadn't made it because I didn't like his performance either. (laughs) Wait, wait, we didn't even talk about the creepy kid from Power of the Dog. Oh, yes. He's in it. Cody Smith McPhee, I think is his name. He's randomly in this movie. He does a good job though. He's um, part of the touring group that Elvis starts with. And isn't it a famous, isn't he playing a famous country I think so, artist? Yeah. Jimmy Rogers? Or Jimmy something? Rogers Snow or something. He was Hank Snow's son or something weird and, uh, like that. So at the very beginning, Elvis is the, like, he's the last name on there. And then he starts going up. Yeah, that was race. a good scene. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. And Elvis just became the headliner and the only one. And yeah, the power of the dog kid, Cody Smith. And the guy who was Hank Snow, who was the big star at the time, um, he was played by uh, the foreman in Australia and Audrey in Moulin Rouge. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. The actor a, who yeah, the actor, yeah. yeah. Okay, he looks familiar. That makes sense. But yeah, the cast is pretty good and they do their job well. Everyone's a little bit larger than life. But again, that's a Baz Luhrmann move for you. And that's Elvis's life for you. He had a ridiculous life. Let's get to ratings because... We've been talking about Elvis for far too long, even though that mo- this movie is also far too long. So let's do Out of Rhinestones, because at the end of Elvis's life, 
This man was wearing a lot of rhinestones. I would personally give this movie, I want to say 3.75, but I'll, I'll round it to four. I'll give it four rhinestones. I'd give it probably, oh, I'm going to steal your idea. I think I'm going to go with 3.75. Um, I think that there were there were quite a few parts that could have been cut. cut and I think it you would have I think you would have enjoyed the best scene so much more if they hadn't been surrounded by sort of excess story. Yeah, and I was going to give it a 3.5. I'm going to steal your thunder too. 3.75 oh sounds goodness. about right because yeah, if it's once it's streaming or once it's on, I'll watch the, some of those scenes we've talked about again and again because they're just so powerful and that's something to consider when you're thinking about a movie because there's such a thing as really they're very if you think about it, they're very few great movies and, and when all is said and done however movie moments yeah Baz has provided so many of them and we've talked about so many of them that if you put them all in a montage that in and of itself would be an amazing movie you know so I almost wonder if this was a victim of too much time he had he probably started out with a lot of ideas and he had so much time to edit and work on it that he kind of overthought it and he tried to make it maybe in in some ways more complicated and and tried to say more than he really needed to. Good point. Yeah, all very good points. Thank you for listening to our Baz Luhrmann series as a whole, honestly. Wait, is it coming to an end? I can't believe this. It's coming to an end, but we will be back for the next movie, whatever that is, in probably like nine years, but we will see. This was our episode about Elvis. Follow us on Instagram at strangelovemedia and visit our website, strangelovemovies.com. And thank you for listening to our episode about Elvis. We enjoyed this movie, even though it had some flaws, and we hope that you guys all saw it in the theaters because it genuinely is a fun time. Don't be scared by the runtime, even though we, it went by faster than it actually seems. Like, I mean, when you see two and a half hours, you're like, oh no. It was manageable. What did you say? Yes, I think so. Well, and the power of Elvis is alive and well because it was one of the few movies to knock Top Gun Maverick out of the top spot. That is a good point. And on that note, what is a famous Elvis line I should say? Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye, guys. <laughs>